The Game of Thrones Season 7 premiere is over, but we're just getting started here on the Game of Thrones post-show recap. And now, here are two guys who, between them, have zero ships and about two and a half good hands. I am Rob Sestrino, joined by Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I'm doing well. Who's the one with the injured hand? Who's the half well, hand? Well, I just figure you've been typing so much for <laughs> Hollywood Reporter and everything that you've been filing that you're probably down at least one hand. Carpal Tunnel is, uh, you know, I've looked into the flames, Josh. I've seen my future. I know how that's going. So I feel like that between the two of us, we're like a half a hand up on uh, Euron. I will resist looking into the flames because I don't want to know my future. I feel like that way leads madness, and I'm okay to to skip that portion of my life. There's already enough mad people on Game of Thrones right now, Rob. All right. Well, we are not mad after getting to see the Game of Thrones Season 7 premiere. And finally, you and I have a chance to talk about it. Josh, uh, you've been so busy these last 24 hours uh, filing everything that you've been doing for THR. I'm so glad that we have an opportunity to do this deep dive podcast where we're going to take a really quick yet deep look at a number of different topics related to Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's going to be very fun. I think it's going to be kind of a scattershot look at the episode and some of the big story beats from the episode and where it might be leading into the future. Uh, there's a lot that I have written about over the past couple of days. All of that is up on The Hollywood Reporter, THR.com slash Game of Thrones. We'll reference some of those stories here, some of the interviews that I've got a chance to do, uh, lots of fun stuff to talk through here. If this is your first time listening to post-show recaps because you have found us through The Hollywood Reporter, welcome aboard. Nice to have you. It's going to be great. It's going to be a really good time. What do we do here at Post Show Recaps, Rob? We like to do fun, smart recaps of scripted TV shows and the occasional movies and uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, we are going to be doing a lot of coverage on here over these next seven plus weeks. Stephen Fishback and I were live after the episode last night. We're going to get into everything here today. And then you and I will be back later on in the week for our Game of Thrones feedback show, where we're going to be taking your emails and voicemail questions. You you can send us an email at got at postshowrecaps.com or leave a voicemail at postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail. And to hear all those shows, you can subscribe to the podcast anytime at postshowrecaps.com or in iTunes, postshowrecaps.com slash got iTunes. Very good stuff. All right. So how about we uh, how about we hop into the episode? You and I have not had a chance to talk about how we uh, have felt about it on the air, at least. You and I were both in attendance at the world premiere in Los Angeles last week. But I think we're on the same page. This was a fun episode of Game of Thrones. Fun episode of Game of Thrones and definitely was a kickstart to the season. And now we've got everything set up. And I really feel like that we got to dive in in these next six weeks. Yeah, I mean, we have uh, we have seven episodes in this season overall. We are now already down to six, which is pretty insane to think about that Game of Thrones is going to be moving that fast. Uh, Twin Peaks, Rob, that started back in May is going to be finishing later than Game of Thrones this season. Yeah, well, in fairness, they had a lot more time to set up for this uh, Twin Peaks season. I mean, that Twin Peaks makes George R.R. R. Martin look like he's on a prolific pace in terms of getting <laughs> stuff out. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, if we start to look at uh, 26, 27 years late from uh, A Dance with Dragons to The Winds of Winter, I think we're all going to be we're all going to be pretty upset. I think that there's going to be some upset people out there. Uh, but yeah, overall, I do think um, I think that there are certainly there are certainly stories that you want to see pick up faster. But I am impressed with the pace so far. Uh, we do have Daenerys back in Westeros at this point. We kick off the episode with what I really do think is an all timer of a scene is this sort of revenge of the Red Wedding and Arya Stark posing as Walder Frey. That's a fantastic scene. Uh, we're seeing the White Walkers approaching very, very swiftly. There's a lot in those fires that the Hound is looking at. So there's a lot of information that is put in play in this episode. Sam dis- discovering Dragonglass on Dragonstone and how that might be used to connect John and Danny in the near future. So there's a lot in play right now, and I, I kind of feel like this first episode has done more business overall uh, at a faster clip than we've seen from premieres in the past. Uh, in doing my rankings of the premieres, I, I think that this is this has to be top of the list pretty easily for me. Number uh, one! Yeah, I think I think so. I think that that Red Wedding scene really puts it very close, you know, re- really puts it over the top. And a lot of what's being set up here, I was a, I'm a real sucker for the Hounds storyline right now, Rob. Maybe not everybody is feeling it. But yeah, I do think this is number one on the board with a bullet. I think that there was just enough in this premiere that you don't necessarily get in the premiere episodes that really are just table setters. Usually this was a table setter that really almost had some some feel of a finale at points for me. So I was a fan. I'm very happy with where we are. Okay, Josh, talk us through some of the interviews that you've been doing with the cast and production team of Game of Thrones. Yeah, so we have a few things that are still in the works, but a couple of interviews that are already up on THR. The first one was with Rory McCann, who was fantastic as the Hound in this week's episode, uh, stumbling upon the same farmhouse that he and Arya stayed at back in season four, where he robbed that poor farmer and promised that that guy wasn't going to survive the winter. Uh, turns out that, you know, Beric Dondarrion and Thoris of Mir aren't the only people who can see into the future. He Even knew. back then, the Hound, he called his shot. Uh, so we talked a lot about that story. Uh, he told a funny story about that great joke that he has about Thoros of Mir's top knot and how that's not fooling him into thinking that Thoros isn't secretly bald. Rory McCann told a really funny story about how Paul Kay, the actor who plays Thoros of Mir, was not thrilled with that line in the script mm-hmm. because apparently he is going slightly <laughs> bald with that top knot being there. And apparently it led to a, a drastic haircut that he just completely shaved his head and now does not look like Thoros of Mir. Okay, so the actor, that was his organic hairstyle. That was not a a wig. And this was just something that was in the script. Unless Rory McCann is taking the piss out of me, which is not entirely impossible, uh, that is that is what he said, is that this was something that must have been uh, an in-joke that uh, that David Benioff and Dan Weiss slipped into the script, and Thoros of Mir was slightly saddened by that development, I Yeah, think. very self-conscious. Yeah, very self-conscious as well. Uh, in terms of sort of the the story stakes that are, that are being set up here with this storyline, you know, Rory McCann talked about how uh, this is definitely something that's going to have kind of an epic epic quality to it, the Brotherhood Without Banners, as they're slowly trekking north. The fact that Sandor Clegane, who is one of the great skeptics of Game of Thrones, can can look into the fires in this scene and see the future, and finally, kind of, even after everything he had seen with Beric Dondarrion back in Season 3, 
when they had trial by combat, I think that there was still an element of cynicism to the Hound there. But after this moment where he's peering into the fire, the cynicism is really gone. Like, I don't think that he'll never not be the Hound, which is a pretty vulgar, straight-up guy, straight shooter of a guy. But I do think that he's somebody who maybe now be more open to the idea of destiny and that maybe he does have a little bit of a bigger role to play in things. Josh, I want to ask you about something that you also wrote, which I hadn't heard before. I thought it was a pretty interesting prediction uh, that you two get involved with Prophecy, that you're calling your shot on something. All right, so let me just put a spoiler warning out there if you want to skip ahead about, what, three minutes, Josh? You think you can get it all in? I'll try to hit it. I'll try to hit in three minutes. Let's see if I can pull it off. Could you tell us about what you think Beric Dondarrion's role might be in all this? Sure, I'll try to sum it up in 60 seconds. It's a challenge that I'm uh, that I'm accepting. I'm going to fail. It's going to be horrible. I'm already wasting time. Uh, my theory on this is that I think that Beric Dondarrion, uh, he is openly wondering about what is his destiny? What is his purpose? And this is something the Hound questions him on. And Beric says, I don't know why the Lord of Light keeps bringing me back, but we're clearly being driven north. There is this battle that is brewing up there and we have to go. And I believe that we're going to see that Beric's purpose is going to be to bring John Jon Snow back to life again. I think Jon Snow is going to die for a second time, and I think that he's going to get revived for a second time. In the books, and again, this is spoiler territory, but it's never really going to appear on the show. Uh, There is a character named Lady Stoneheart, if you have not heard of her. She is a zombified version of Catelyn Stark. Catelyn Stark's corpse washes ashore three days after the Red Wedding. The Brotherhood Without Banners stumble upon Catelyn Stark, uh, and Beric Dondarrion sacrifices his final life. Uh, to breathe his last bit of life into Catelyn Stark, sacrifices himself, she rises, she takes control over the Brotherhood Without Banners, and she uses them to essentially target the phrase and get vengeance for the Red Wedding. So it becomes a very vengeful Brotherhood Without Banners. In the premiere, we kind of saw Arya Stark taking on some of that Lady Stoneheart narrative weight. Uh, she takes out the phrase. It was fantastic. It was a really great scene. And I think that another bit of this Lady Stoneheart storyline might make it on to Thrones, where Beric Dondarrion, having sacrificed himself for Lady Stoneheart in the books, is still in a position to sacrifice his life for somebody later on down the line. And if he is barreling north, who else is a more predestined character up in the north than Jon Snow? Uh, Jon Snow, when he's killed in A Dance with Dragons in George R. R. Martin's book, he is stabbed an unbelievable, you know, in unbelievable places. It's not as clean as just getting stabbed in the gut a few times by Ollie and Alistair Thorne and the other people the show. He gets stabbed in the neck, he gets stabbed in the chest, he gets stabbed between the shoulder blades, he gets stabbed uh, probably lots of other places that we never find out about because he passes out from the pain before we can know more. Um, So that Jon Snow who's going to come back in the book is not going to be as clean and attractive and Kit Harington worthy as Kit Harington. I think that he is going to be somebody who is a little bit more grizzled. And one of the things that you do get from someone like Beric on the show, and especially in the books, is when he keeps coming back to life, he loses bits of himself. A little bit of yourself goes away and you're a little bit less of the person you were before. I really think that this story doesn't have a happy ending for Jon Snow. I think that Jon Snow is going to be really involved in saving Westeros and stopping this White Walker threat. But I can't imagine that he is going to be around to see it. And I think kind of a cool way to start driving that idea home is to put him through death again and to show that this can come for a character like Jon Snow once again. And Beric is somebody who has 
book reasons for being the person who would be in place to bring that character back. So maybe it's a totally crackpot theory. Maybe it is It is completely out of nowhere. Maybe nothing even close to something like that will happen. But I do think that it would be really surprising to see in the middle of an episode, Jon Snow just drop dead again, as if like the show could never possibly go there again. Certainly not this soon. And then is suddenly back on his feet within the same episode. I think it would push his story in a really cool direction. So that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. To me, that makes a lot of sense, because Beric Dondarrion got a lot of screen time here. We've only got 13 episodes left coming into this season, and it does feel like that he is being set up with some importance. There was a reason why they brought him back into the story. You feel like that anybody that we're following in the action has a role to play in the endgame, and that's as good of a reason as any to have him around, Josh. So we'll see. I mean, just a, it's a pet theory for now, but I think that, you know, whatever is going on with the Brotherhood and with Beric, it's not going to be for nothing. You know, this is going to be, you know, we're in the final stretch here. We've got 12 episodes of Game of Thrones left before this show is finished. And you're not going to spend this much screen time on the Hound and his story and the people in his story, unless that's really all going to come to some kind of boil. And I think that that is, that's an exciting thing that you could imagine Beric being involved in. So let's see if it happens. We're planning our flag, as we like to say here on Post Show Recap. So we'll see if anything comes of it. All right. Speaking of coming to a boil, uh, Sam was uh, working on a bunch of uh, stew in addition to other tasks uh, at the Citadel. You also had a chance to speak with John Bradley about everything that he went through in uh, last night's episode. Yeah, John Bradley, uh, what a trooper. That man was uh, filming this sequence for about five days, mm-hmm. according to John Bradley. It was it was about five days of work. It happened while he was, uh, he was the only person on the Game of Thrones cast who was not attending the 2016 Emmys that week. So while his castmates were uh, talking on the red carpet and going to after parties and doing all of that, uh, John Bradley was scrubbing toilets in the Citadel. So that's that's a that's a difficult thing to to have to deal with. Poor Sam. Poor, poor Sam. Uh, yeah, no, he he was talking about how he was very impressed with how the montage came together. This is John Bradley's quote. It was kind of strange just making sure that you were getting these tiny little microscopic five-second moments in the can and then hand it over to the editors to stitch into this montage that it became. Curious choice of words, I think. But I right. think it's uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's definitely cool to imagine how all of that came together. Uh, one thing that I got into with him a little bit is sort of Sam's headspace in the Citadel right now, and what is Sam going through? And yeah, it's a very funny montage or a very gross montage. Certainly, could possibly be both, depending on how dark your sense of humor is. But one of the things that it kind of accomplishes dramatically, and I think that the scene with Jim Broadbent's character, the the new Archmaester who's been introduced in this in this storyline. I think that both of those scenes really show that Sam is frustrated and Sam has reached the Citadel and he has had this mission in mind to get information that's going to be really valuable in the war against the White Walkers. And he's kind of being stonewalled, not stonehearted, by the people here in the Citadel. And they're not really contributing. They're not really interested in hearing about what he has seen beyond the wall. And I think that he's very frustrated and it seems like that's going to be a real catalyst to Sam's story here in the Citadel, which I think should be something that
think that's going to be pretty important based on the fact that it got as much screen time as it did in the premiere. Sort of like what I was saying before about The Hound and Barrack. I think that the Citadel might be a really prominent location this year. And we could even be seeing the Archmaester. I don't know if I want to, you know, I'm knocking on wood as I say this because I know it's going to trigger some people. But maybe new High Sparrow-ish territory with oh, this no. character. Oh, no. I know, Why? I know Rob, Rob is not a fan of the High Sparrow and many people are not. But I do wonder if this is sort of going to take that uh, that narrative role, at least that kind of screen time that was devoted to the High Sparrow before. I do wonder if the Citadel might have some uh, some moments of antagonism towards Sam during the season. Well, what is it that you're seeing there? Why do you see it going in that direction? Well, there's there's a, there's definitely a theory in the books. If you want to stamp a super fast spoiler alert, super but fast it's not, spoiler alert, super fast spoiler alert. There is a theory in the books that there is some sort of maester conspiracy to kind of disavow supernatural stuff. Stuff and magic and kind of keep that on lockdown and let logic and reason win the day, uh, even at the expense of denying things that, while magical, are true. Uh, it hasn't bared out in the books yet, mostly because the books themselves haven't bared out yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's certainly something that people who read them are watching for. Uh, and I think with this character, with the Archmaester, potentially you could be seeing the starting points of that. The fact that he tells him, yeah, I believe you that there are White Walkers out there. But I'm not going to really help you with it because we're going to be fine. And, you know, we're down here in Old Town and none of that's going to matter. So I think that as Sam gets deeper into, you know, finding out things like Dragonstone has Dragonglass and sending that information to John and being willing to, to bend the rules and go into the secret sections of the Citadel, I do think that you could see someone like uh, Jim Broadbent's character, like the Archmaester, maybe coming into conflict with Sam in a way that for some people might expend too much story line, but I think it has potential to be pretty interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that Grand Maester conspiracy also has to do with how the dragons went extinct the first time around, right? Yeah, that that's definitely a part to play in it, uh, that they may have had something to do with the fact that dragons aren't exactly thriving in Westeros, although we do have three new dragons in Westeros now, Rob. Okay, so that could be another reason to have them involved in the storyline. Josh, Ed Sheeran popped up and and was a major darling on social media after his performance uh, in the episode. Stephen and I were pontificating last night if Ed Sheeran could be a returning character. Uh, you say no. This is going to be a one and done for Ed Sheeran. I really don't think so. I don't think that you're you know you're booking Ed Sheeran for a multi episode arc. This is not the first time that you know a musician or a singer songwriter or some other famous face has popped up on Game of Thrones before. It's certainly the most prominent instance of that, uh, and it definitely you know I I understand the folks who said that it, it took them out of it to to see Ed Sheeran just kind of pop up on screen like that without explanation is a little bit jarring. But I really do think that it was mostly intended as kind of a surprise for Macy Williams, who's a big, a big Ed Sheeran fan, uh, and it's just kind of a fun thing to do. It's not Ed Sheeran's first time in a fantasy television epic, Rob. He was on The Bastard Executioner. Did you know that? No, no. Yeah. Ed Sheeran was on The Bastard Executioner, so he he's climbing up in the world. Yeah, Rob, so he guy. wasn't in the premiere of The Bastard Executioner. No, no you and I would have noticed that. <laughs> then we would have known. Yeah. So no, I I don't think I don't think so. I really think that this scene with the Lannister soldiers really kind of exists to show Arya that yeah, she just wiped out the entirety of House Frey and now she wants to go after Cersei Lannister and finally get revenge for everything that she's put her family through. 
but maybe not every single person who is associated with the Lannisters is just automatically a monster. Maybe there are people who work for this regime that are willing to give you, you know, their game meat in the middle of the woods. You know, maybe they are willing to break bread with you and make sure that you're not killed or alone on the road. Uh, I think that that's something that's important for Arya to start to recognize, to gain some humanity back after such a massive attack uh, as she instituted in the beginning of this season. I think if we're going to stand any chance of Arya kind of reverting to something resembling a human being and not just a stone-cold killer, I think that this might be something that's pushing us on that path. I'm optimistic. I think that that might be where we're going with Arya. Rather than going forward with this major revenge plot against Cersei, I don't know that she's going to reach King's Landing. I think that there are going to be things in the way. There are going to be moments on the road that are conv- that are going to convince her that maybe her business is best attended to up north with her family once she finds out that they're back in control of Winterfell. Now, Josh, the name of the episode this week was Dragonstone, and it comes up a couple of times. Obviously, Daenerys lands there. That's also where Sam discovers. That's where the Dragonglass Mine is located, and that's where we see Sam also send the Raven to Jon Snow. Do you think that this is going to be the beginning of a potential meetup for John and Danny? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that this is something that you could have theorized a little bit in the off season. That you know that Daenerys, when she gets to Westeros, the easiest first stop for her is Dragonstone. Certainly, trailers and promotional material made it really clear that Danny was going to be arriving in Dragonstone. And Stannis Baratheon even said it on the show once upon a time that Dragonstone has dragon glass, tons and tons of dragon glass. And Sam reminds us of that conversation in this episode. Uh, so I think that you could have connected the fact that since Dragonglass is so powerful in the war against White Walkers that we've seen it kill White Walkers in the past in the whole Sam the Slayer moment once upon a time. I think that it wasn't so hard to make the connection that John and Danny could come together over this. What I'm what I'm wondering is will it be like a peaceful meetup? You know, is this going to be something where John can go to Danny and in a very level-headed manner explain the threat that's facing them that's barreling towards the wall? Uh, will she be receptive to that? Or are her sights focused pretty squarely on conquering the Seven Kingdoms? You know, she walks through Dragonstone with so much appreciation and admiration and awe for her own family's history. And she tears down that Baratheon banner at one point, And she says, shall we begin? You know, she doesn't even take time to really appreciate where she is and kick her feet up and really just soak in being home other than that five-minute walk. They get to the war room and she turns to Tyrion and she wants to go to war. So I don't know if she's going to be easily convinced to to join John's cause if John comes to her, but that's going to be a really exciting thing that I expect that we'll see probably even next week or at least the start of that next week. In Daenerys's crew, who do you think is the person that's advising her to listen to Jon Snow? Is it Tyrion from when I they think, met yeah. up in season 1? I think that that's, that's pretty easy to see. That's going to be a really exciting scene. Whenever John and Tyrion get back together, they've got a lot to catch each other up on. But they had a really great rapport in those first three episodes of the show when they were together. So I think that Tyrion could be, you know, kind of the peacemaker and the deal maker here and somebody who recognizes 
I trust a guy like Jon Snow. This is a serious man who is not likely to be suffering from delusions of grandeur. So maybe we should listen to him. Maybe he has uh, maybe he has the right thing in mind after all. So I, I think that Tyrion could be a guy that makes that connection between Jon and Danny for sure. Do you think Jon would be the person to go to Dragonstone to sort of broker this deal? Or would he potentially send Sansa and we could have a Tyrion-Sansa reunion? That would be interesting. Uh, that would be very compelling. That's something that's... um. That that doesn't get a lot of thought, at least not by me, is what's it going to be like whenever Tyrion and Sansa get back together? It's very easy to forget that these two were married, mm-hmm. uh, and I think legally are still married, unless I don't think that the Ramsey-Bolton one ever really counted legally. Mm-hmm. Not sure exactly what the, what the law of that looks like, but I think it should be fun whenever you get these two together, because they came together under poor circumstances, but they were at least, you know, they were, they were warm towards each other. You know, Tyrion was probably the kindest Lannister by far that Sansa ever met. So I wonder if they can use bar. that. Sh- it's a very low bar, but I wonder if they can use that shared history to kind of make some magic happen here. Uh, but there's a lot of different dynamics that are going to be very exciting when you see the Starks and the Targaryens, um, if they join forces or go to war against each other, whatever it's going to be. Like, Davos and Tyrion is even kind of a fascinating one, where Tyrion is the architect of the of the Lannister success mm-hmm. at the Battle of the Blackwater in the execution of the wildfire on the bay where Davos's ships explode and Davos loses a son in that attack. How is he going to handle meeting the guy who basically planned his own son's death? So I think there's going to be a lot of combustible dynamics. It should be really, really fun when we get those characters together. The Blackwater Bay may see some more action uh, pretty soon, Josh, because it looks like that we are going to be gearing up for a naval battle as Euron's fleet is going to go off and he promises Cersei a gift. Do you have any sense of what that gift is going to be? I mean, I think it could be Tyrion, right? It's not impossible that Euron is just going to go out there and snatch Tyrion and bring him to Cersei. What is Cersei, you know, what is the one thing she hates more than anything in the world? And that's probably her brother. The one the the one that has two hands. Mm-hmm. That's the brother she hates. Uh, you know, she really, really has it out for him. She still believes that Tyrion was responsible for murdering Joffrey. She knows correctly that Tyrion did kill their father. And I think that she would really consider that a win. If she could take Tyrion away from the target and do with him what she wants and that would be very bad for Tyrion probably. Gotta imagine Tyrion is wearing, you know, a fairly healthy amount of plot armor that I don't think that he would be in great danger, but I think that that could be who Euron is targeting and it'll be a question of whether or not he's able to pull something like that off. My money is that if Euron is going up against Yara and Theon, I do think that uh, that Uncle Euron's got this. I feel like I feel like the edge has to go to him, if only to kind of tip the scales for Cersei, who seems so imbalanced when it's compared to the Targaryen forces. And even Jaime notes that in the episode. Like on paper, we are by far and away the losing side. So I think in order to start to even the scales even just a tiny, tiny bit. I think if you see the two the two halves of House Greyjoy go to war, my money would be on Euron's side winning. Even with the dragons? I mean, if the dragons are in play, Euron's in trouble. That would be the, that would be the deal breaker. But I feel like that's the thing. Like, I feel like the, I feel like you have to have some sort of win for Cersei's side to extend this just a little bit longer. Otherwise, why isn't it just going to be lights out super, super quick? 
I hear what you're saying. I just don't see how Euron's fleet is going to match up against those dragons. We saw what the dragons did to the master's fleet back at the end of season six. So I don't know necessarily how he can compete with that. If the dragons are there, you know, if the dragons are busy with some other story, you know, if Daenerys catches wind of what's going on in Winterfell and accepts an invitation to come to Winterfell rather than Jon going down to Dragonstone and she flies up there with Mm -hmm. her three dragons and a couple of confidants, then the dragons are occupied. So you'd have to take the dragons out of the mix for Euron to be able to win the naval battle. Uh, So I think that you just have to find whatever solution that's going to be. And I think if if you find yourself in a situation where we're going into a sequence that is clearly going to be some sort of ship battle between the Greyjoys, and you know that the dragons are otherwise occupied, I feel like that's a really strong sign that the Greyjoy, uh, that the Euron Greyjoy side of the aisle is, is going to come out victorious. Okay, on the northern front in the battle against uh, the Night's King, who is marching south, we saw John send Tormund and the Wildlings to go to Eastwatch by the Sea. I like- Isn't that fun to have the Wildlings just manning a castle on the Night's Watch, like on the wall? Yeah. The- the irony is sweet. Well, Torment said, I guess we're the Night's Watch now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's really no one around to like really feel too salty about that anymore. But <laughs> can you imagine if Alistair Thorne was still alive? He'd be so pissed off right now. Yeah. He's rolling in his grave right now. <laughs> yeah, he really is. So, Josh, how do you think that that is going to uh, play out? And do you feel like that if Torment and Brienne is going to happen, it needs to happen soon? Because I don't feel like Torment makes it back. Yeah. I think that that's probably right. Um, it does seem like there is some momentum towards a big battle at Eastwatch by the sea. Tormund and the Wildlings are being sent there because it's the castle that's on the, the most eastern edge of Westeros and of the Wall, and it's the closest to uh, to accessing Hardhome. Um, and we know that Hardhome was one of the last places where Jon uh, and the Night's Watch saw the White Walkers, so they want to be prepared in proximity to where they might be making landfall in Westeros. What's more is the Hound, when he's looking into the fires, he's describing a location that sounds very much like Eastwatch by the Sea as well. Uh, he's talking about being at the edge of the wall and there being a, a mountain in the distance, and all of this points to Eastwatch by the Sea. And we've seen in the trailer for Season 7, there's this great big snow battle that's coming that involves the Brotherhood Without Banners. We see Beric Dondarrion light up his sword in what was a really, really epic shot from that trailer. So I think that we are starting to build towards some sort of major battle happening here. I don't know if it's sooner or later, if this is something that maybe the whole season is going to hinge on is some sort of conflict up here. But I think that we're going towards that. And I think that this could be uh, this could be the place where, just to couch it in spoiler terms, the book theory that I had from earlier, I think could possibly take place here. Josh, I know you've also done an analysis of the trailer for next week's episode. Do you have any big takeaways in terms of what you were able to see in the trailer? Well, I think really the coolest thing is uh, it seems like Nymeria the direwolf is back in the mix. Uh, That is something that's been rumored, hoped for, for forever. We haven't seen Nymeria since the second episode of Game of Thrones when Arya had to cast her out uh, or else she would have gotten the lady treatment. You know, she would have been put under the sword. So that was no good. So she cast her out and we haven't seen Nymeria since. Uh, And there's a lot of there was a lot of hope behind seeing this uh, seeing this direwolf back in the mix at some point, especially given the fact that other than uh, other than Ghost, we don't have any anymore. They're all gone. So Nymeria and 
Ghost are the final two direwolves of that original pack, and the trailer makes it really clear that uh, Nymeria, at least, is going to be back in the mix, uh, crossing paths with Arya, probably. And I think that that could be another thing that really inspires Arya, that my destiny is not south, it's north, and I need to start heading in that direction. So hopefully that's something that starts moving next week. Okay, Josh, we are about 24 hours out from the episode. I know you've already filed a bunch of stories, but the week is young. And I imagine you have a lot more to come. A lot more to come. Yeah, uh, we've got a couple more interviews that are going to be on the way. Uh, confirmed already, we're going to be speaking with Jeremy Podeswa, who is the director of this episode. He's also going to be directing the finale of Season 7. So that's going to be great. I can't wait to pick his brain and talk about some of these really amazing shots in this episode. That opening shot of the White Walkers, uh, that post-credits shot, rather, of the White Walkers coming towards the screen was just phenomenal. So we'll dig into all of that. Uh, we also have an interview with Deb Riley, who's the production designer of Game of Thrones talking about the creation of Dragonstone and the, the location scouting that went into that and all of the work that went into making this a really eye-popping location on the show. An impressive feat uh, seven seasons into Game of Thrones what they were able to pull off there. So that's coming up. Comic-Con is this week, Rob. Comic-Con is very exciting. There's going to be the Game of Thrones panel. There's going to be some sort of interactive Game of Thrones activation that I know nothing about yet. Like Jon Snow, I know nothing, but I will be testing Testing that out, and I will be at the panel as well. So we'll have plenty of coverage on that coming in the near future, and we'll be able to talk about all of that and more on next week's podcast for sure. Also, you and I will be getting back together midweek to answer all of your feedback questions. So send us your ravens. You can email us got at postshowrecaps.com or leave us a voicemail message, postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail. And to make sure you don't miss that when we get back together or any of the Game of Thrones podcasts we're doing. You can subscribe to our podcast at postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes and your feedback and your star ratings are most certainly appreciated here at the start of the season because it helps more people find the show in the iTunes store. And of course, for everything Josh Wiggler is working on at The Hollywood Reporter, go to THR.com slash Game of Thrones. That's right. Please do. And uh, can't wait to, to keep going with this season. It's off to a really exciting start. And the fact that there's only six more really suggests to me that things are going to move pretty quickly here. So uh, we're on the other side of the mountain, Rob, not Gregor Clegane. No. Uh, and we are picking up speed pretty rapidly, I hope. Except for the Clegane ball. That doesn't seem like we're picking up speed for that. Uh, I asked Rory McCann, what do we have to do to get the Clegane Bowl? What do we have to do to see the Hound and the Mountain fight each other before this whole show is over? And he laughed at me and said, who says it hasn't already happened? So... Hmm. How about that? Okay. Get hype. Okay. Get hype. Get hype. Josh, I have to commend you. I don't know how you're awake right now after everything that uh, you have been putting together for all of us uh, Game of Thrones fans, but uh, I commend you for your outstanding work. You could follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter. He is at Round Howard. I'm at Rob Sesterino. Josh, anything else you want to say? Nothing else. Looking forward to more Game of Thrones all week long. Going to be fun. All right. Can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. 